This episode of the podcast was recorded at home in Wicklow on the 14th of July 2021. And this episode broke my flow because I had to re-record it. I actually recorded the, uh, the substance of this episode uh, about a week ago. But because of some technical issues over which I had no control... The end product was not fit for consumption. It had a crackle from about, from about halfway through the episode. It had a crackle on the soundtrack and I could not get rid of it. And so rather than chopping and, you know, cutting and pasting and editing and trying to bring in the second half of the episode again, uh, I just chucked the whole lot in the bin and went again from scratch and see the thing is <laughs> and this will be a <laughs> this will be a big newsflash these episodes are unscripted no shit you say <laughs> yeah so I try to kind of just let it flow and put bring the pieces together think on my feet or think in my seat as it happens to be and so I did still touch on the substantial points the main thrust of what I wanted to talk about um, but I lost some other elements and what you'll hear basically is a discussion about madness and madness in a context of uh, conflict and of being attacked and defending oneself and I bring in the world of karate and talk about the conditions of conflict within traditional martial arts training and then compare that to conflict with someone who is yeah mad I suppose I mean I I, I discuss the terminology try to uh, look at it intelligently and with a lot of consideration and to just come away from just that clumsy catch-all term anyway that's what you have to look forward to in this episode and yeah i i hope it's i hope something still comes through because i'm a bit sad about the things that i lost from the previous uh recording of, of this particular episode so there you go i'm gonna say episode again just because I, it seems to be just coming up every three or four words. Episode. This is episode eight of The Clear Out. I do hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Not gonna change my mind. the dream Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. How she cotton. <laughs> that's what they used to say when I was a kid where I grew up how's she cutting how's it going it's a beautiful day here in hashtag blessed the sun is shining the snails are nowhere to be seen the trees are singing in the breeze isn't that nice lovely yeah a lovely bit of sunshine after uh, a very soggy sodden week last week the summer has returned to this little corner of Ireland. Thanks, son. I appreciate that. That's nice of you. 
Now, how's everything with you? How's your summer going? Or how's your winter going if you're in the, the southern hemisphere? I know, I know I have a few old pals from Australia who are tuning in every now and again. A Melbourne winter. Not the worst, not the worst. Survivable, I would say. Like, like many things, like many things in life, they are survivable. Because we are survivors. That's one of the things we do best. We humans. We humans. We survive. We stumble along and somehow find a way to get through to the next day. Aren't we just amazing? Fair play to us. Big pat on the back. Pat, pat, pat. Now, a couple of things. A couple of things caught my eye today. <laughs> my daughter, my daughter was foostering around my wallet, just uh, just having a nose, not looking for money. She's not really at that stage yet, you know. She's she's a little girl after all. Uh, but she fished out of my wallet a little object, and what it was, what it is, <laughs> what it was, it's it, it's a um, a bookmark. A little metallic, more than metallic, it's metal, it's made from metal, so, you know, it's a metal butt mark, but, 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 but mark. Okay, I'll do a redo. A metal bookmark that was given to me some years ago in Melbourne. It was given to me by a Korean student, a female Korean student, who seemed excessively impressed with my teaching <laughs> um, I wasn't one of those teachers who sort of cultivated the old gift giving ritual or dynamic now that might sound a little bit there might be a little hint a hint of snide in that comment I was aware of some teachers who really pushed hard into that side of let's have some gifts for a teacher at the end at the end of a cycle um i wasn't i've never been one of those teachers i'm like you know i'm out mic drop see you later boom thanks thanks for taking part in any case this lovely young woman from korea presented me with a little nice little card and this very ornate and really quite beautiful bookmark made of metal it's probably only half a millimeter thick and maybe oh it could be 30 millimeters by 50 that sort of that sort of dimension and it depicts a palace or some sort of grand korean building and it it has sort of a, a grid or a mesh in the empty space inside its little frame but this beautifully, you know, coloured and very delicately um, engraved palace is depicted on the bookmark. And it has a tassel attached, a turquoise tassel, in the middle of which is, oh, I wanted to say a Gordian knot. But I don't think it is a Gordian knot. It's just a sort of a, quite an elaborate but decorative knot in the middle of the tassel. And my daughter had completely forgotten about the existence of this thing. 
but she had coveted it at one point. It used to sit beside my computer at the on, on my desk in, in our little unit in Melbourne. Um, and yeah, it just seems to me to to typify a certain aspect of you know what what I've perceived in different Asian cultures, you know, Korea and Japan, Thailand, perhaps. Just this attention to detail, like small and beautifully produced, a sort of a an impressive precision in the handiwork. So I was admiring that earlier and just reappreciating its beauty. And also thinking of that student, which um whom to whom I will return later, perhaps. Another thing that caught my eye this morning was my head. <laughs> I was I was in the bathroom washing my hands and looking in the mirror, as one does um, in, the, in the bathroom. And there's a skylight above my head and the sun was shining down on top of my head. And basically what caught my eye was the shape of my skull, my, my crown, if you will, through my hair. And, you know, I'm quite lucky for a man of my age. I still have a reasonable amount of hair on my head. Quite a quite a good amount, I'd say, but there is a recession, and um, that's not not an economic recession unless my hair suddenly becomes very valuable and I see it on some financial index somewhere. But a retreat, <laughs> a retreat of the hair, and the, not not it's not quite as thick in some parts of the head, and it just caught my eye as the light shone down. And it wasn't a godly light. It wasn't an epiphany. I wasn't being struck with some world-changing insight. No, I was just looking at the top of my head and going, oh, the top of my head looks like a little hillock. <laughs> a hillock? A hill. A sparsely, um, a sparsely populated hill where there aren't quite enough trees. Too few trees growing on this hill. And I thought... Wow, who are the people who live in the bare woods on top of my head? What poor little upset, resentful citizens or inhabitants dwell on that lonely hill where there's not sufficient shelter to protect them from the burning sun or the the, the torrent, torrential rain or the howling wind? So that's what I saw. That caught my eye. Now, I don't know. Maybe that makes me sound a little bit insane. And that is germane to this episode because I do want to go on a bit of a, a little bit of a reflection, a little bit of a wander around the worlds of madness and insanity today. Um, and I'm trying to decide how to approach <laughs> how to approach this particular topic i might start with the world of self defense so let me let me lay something out for you in the world of karate kara hand no kara empty te hand karate the world of the empty hand we have a codified system of training and this would be true for many traditional martial arts 
so basically what that means is there is a way that we behave there are certain rituals that we observe there are codes of behavior there's etiquette that is central to how we conduct ourselves when we train and a lot of these things are a way of um you know embedding embedding a way of a way of acting and behaving towards the people we train with and so certain it's 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 like a system of respect emotional psychological respect and physical respect where safe distance is maintained where ordered distance and ordered positioning on the training floor is maintained and when we start to practice our techniques against each other we have certainly in my style of karate shotokan we have a very systematized approach to to learning that training so we can practice techniques safely in a very controlled way and over time the the sequence of techniques the mode of training the mode of delivery the mode of that partner work it changes it becomes more complex and ultimately it builds towards free movement and any attack or defense allowed within within the system um and so yeah it's 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 a very structured thing and it allows for a degree of trust and it allows for a degree of safety which helps us minimize injury to ourselves or to others it helps us minimize accidents it helps us minimize unwanted collisions or broken bones or knocked out teeth or burst lips or black eyes or all that sort of thing and those things do happen occasionally but not as often as you would think i've had more injuries playing football soccer the round ball game um than any karate class i've ever done in fact i I remember one incident uh, when i was training in melbourne and first i can't remember what the what the objective was but basically i had oh i can't remember but i was i was in the middle of a, a circle of um you know my fellow practitioners and they all had to attack me you know in sequence one after the other but you know repeatedly and you know there were just little kind of skirmishes little exchanges but i was in the middle and i think i think my 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 sensei my instructor chose to put me in the middle because i was a black belt and the idea was i could demonstrate a sufficient level of uh, proficiency a sufficient level of sort of martial spirit and attitude to sustain basically unending fighting and i think i can't remember how many people were in the circle but i i think i jotted down afterwards um it was about i don't know it was like it was 96 fights one after the other and as i say these were exchanges like a, someone would attack with a combination of techniques in and out three or four times maybe and then they go back to the circle and the next person comes in and there was a range of levels and abilities um in front of me 
So from very inexperienced people to other black belts. And yeah, it, you know, it, it's not an uncommon type of drill. Um, and it served its purpose. And out of that, I came away with, you know, a few knocks and nicks, but nothing serious. Nothing was broken. Um, yeah, so there you go. And that's just to illustrate that, again, a controlled environment. Now, why do I mention this? I mention this because in that world and in the world of other fighting um, disciplines, and it's not necessarily restricted to Eastern martial arts, you know, this would apply in the world of boxing as well. It would apply in the world of kickboxing, um, mixed martial arts, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which of course would have influences coming from Japan and Eastern philosophy, controlled training environments. When you're fighting in that world, you're, you are stepping into a world where you expect to be attacked. And you are stepping into a world where you have a frame of reference for the nature of that attack or those attacks and sometimes it might be a controlled fight situation in a, in that training setting you might be getting attacked by more than one person and you're trying to develop you know a greater awareness or greater resources should you ever find yourself in that situation out in the real world but of course there is always the sense that you are prepared because you have chosen to place yourself in that situation. So you are prepared, even though it still can be confronting on a certain level. It still can bring a certain intensity. It can still bring physical risk. It can still stimulate an adrenaline rush. But you're training for those things. And you're not going to be put into that situation the first time you walk into a karate club, you know, a dojo, wherever. Um, and so there's a preparation somewhere in your system you accept that this is what's going to happen and as they say forewarned is forearmed so you're already in a certain mode of thinking a certain a certain mode of preparedness that helps you deal with that threat that's in front of you and that's an agreement you know that's within that world that's the sort of the social compact Everyone who steps into that world signs up for the terms, um, well, to borrow the military phrase, for the, the rules of engagement. And that's, you know, that can be part of the, you know, the attraction to know you can push yourself within a world that's tethered to very strong traditional notions of respect and self-control. Um, but also the sort of brotherhood or sisterhood of pushing each other together, like everyone trying to help everyone else get better in that particular uh, domain. Now, that, I think, I hope, successfully describes uh, a, a training environment and the dynamics that obtain in that world. So there's a big difference between being attacked in that world when you can make a lot of informed calculations 
about the nature of the attack and the intention of the attacker. It's a training world. So typically, 99% of the time, the intention of that attacker is to practice their skills. It's not personal in nature. They are not attacking you because they dislike you or they don't value you or they want to actually truly harm you or do physical damage to you or to scare you or make you feel small or bad that is not their intention that that would be a very unlucky situation for that to transpire in that sort of setting so that's different isn't it from when you're attacked outside when you're attacked out in the real world okay if we take a typical situation you know a street attack or an attack in a bar um those settings have particular circumstances or particular environmental elements so alcohol is one of them straight away usually someone who wants to attack you outside um, often it's fueled by substance abuse or substance imbalance um, you know it it could be you know there are, there are many different reasons why you might be attacked and it might just be absolute bad luck you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time um, you walk down the wrong street um, you meet someone when something else has transpired and they're looking for an outlet to deliver that anger now, from a self-defense point of view, you're hoping at that point that certain training kicks in if you are attacked and you're able to avoid the situation altogether or you're able to defend um, and sort of, um, you know, take the heat out of the situation, maybe talk the person down. Or if you have to retaliate and you have to strike back, that you can do so effectively, um, minimally, ideally. And again, you know, withdraw from the situation or again, depending on your level of competence, if you're able to restrain the person, you know, wait for assistance from the police. That's, again, a preferable option. Um, and those situations are, you know, pretty, I suppose they're pretty typical. Um, that's not that's not an unusual scenario. We've all heard of them. We all know people who've, you know, been... Um, the victim in that situation and that is you know worldwide widespread and there's different levels of danger depending on the prevailing kind of social conditions or you know gun control laws or you know if, if, if it's become normal for people to be carrying knives or other kinds of weapons those bring in other elements of danger and other things we have to consider now all of that said, that's not really the area I'm interested in in terms of this discussion and talking about being attacked. I'm more interested in when you're attacked in the non-physical sense, when it's a verbal attack or an emotional or psychological attack. And when that attacker is known to you, and so this could be an attack that comes from a work colleague. It could be an attack that comes from, um, you know, a, 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 you know, a manager, someone who's uh, 
in a, you know, in a superior role to you within your workplace. This could be more commonly an attack from a family member. And again, I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, domestic abuse. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. Um, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a separate, that's a whole other discussion, but I'm just talking about someone who knows you, you know, unleashing on you and you being the focus of their, their anger or their, you know, you know, whatever their, their issue is. Um, I'm interested in this because I suspect that many of us feel that we have been on the receiving end of that kind of thing at different stages in our lives. And that can be, you know, that can be a very confronting and upsetting and destabilizing event. And indeed, we may have been the person who has been delivering that attack ourselves on someone we know. Um, I know I've certainly been guilty of that at times, just with a, a loss of temper and, you know, to, 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 to suddenly find myself really you know, releasing pent up, you know, frustration or issues that haven't been expressed and not being able to control the, the outburst and having to sort of check myself afterwards and go, that wasn't ideal. And that was a, a loss of control, which, you know, has hurt somebody else and having to, to kind of go back and put my hand up and go, you know, I'm sorry, that wasn't fair. And, you know, there, there was a, there was a better way and there was a better mode to express, you know, my issues if, if, if I had them. Um, and that, you know, that would be, you know, that would be nice if, you know, if we can find that sort of, you know, that reasonable, that reasonable place to, to meet, um, where there can be an exchange and where we can set aside our personal stuff. I mean, I did, I did touch on this last week when I was talking about woke politics and woke culture and, you know, hypersensitivity and hyper triggerism. Um, but if you think about it, you know, those terms, you know, to be, to be hypersensitive or to be hyper, you know, triggerable, um, another new coinage. Uh, I would argue that many of us are most inclined to be that way around the people who know us best. I would argue that I would most likely be triggered by certain family members or certain friends who I've known all my life. Um, you know, these people have an ability to, um, you know, to know your spots. <laughs> <laughs> and again to return to that notion from last week of the the flower bed the flower bed that you have carefully arranged in front of your vulnerable area um often the people who know you best have a great knack for jumping in that flower bed <laughs> um but what i want to you know what, what i'm kind of interested in here is I reckon there's an understood and, you know, very recognisable to and fro or back and forth of that dynamic between family members, between, you know, any any family, you know, those kind of squabbles and disputes are, 
you know, old um, vendettas can surface at different times through our lives. And maybe we accept them or we normalize them or we understand, oh, well, you know, that was probably coming or, oh, I know what this is about or, oh, you've always thought that or you've always thought this. And we can kind of accommodate it. We can accommodate it within reason because other most other times there's a reasonable a reasonable and healthful relationship there to be had there's a you know there's a a baseline status that's quite healthy and again normal in i'm going to put normal in inverted commas there because i think normal has become one of these words where we can all challenge what normal means like you know what is normal anymore but if I was to define normal, even with my inverted commas, I think there's a baseline behavior that orients itself around some fundamentals of respect and consideration and basic niceness or kindness. Um, I'm not talking about ex- anything excessive, nothing excessively generous or considerate or overly extended on the part of the other person, but just a, and I mean, and, and this is, you know, this is, you know, I, I'm speaking about the lowest bar, the lowest possible bar of just tolerable, um, tolerable communication and interaction. But if you, if we can attach to a, you know, attach to that fundamentally, you know, respectful terms of exchange, that is what I would say, well, that's normal. (laughs) Does that sound very negative? (laughs) Am I revealing my, my deep kind of, my deep neuroses and fears and, you know, self image here? I, I don't think so. So that's my definition of normal. And I think within that, we can have these eruptions, these disturbances, these um, occasional clashes, and you can kind of roll through them and recover and bounce back and carry on. And there's still a sense of alignment or harmony of some kind. Now, that's grand. But... What happens when you're dealing with someone who doesn't have the ability to meet you in that place? Noisy traffic outside. What happens when someone doesn't have the ability to meet you in that place, that place of reasonableness, that place of moderation, that place of empathy? And, hmm, well, maybe empathy, I don't know, maybe empathy is too, empathy is too loaded a word. But someone who is willing to allow for the possibility that their view of things is possibly not entirely right. Because I've encountered people who have that personality 
are who have that brain wiring that pathology and my experience has been that there is no room for maneuver when you're talking when you're talking to a person who is whose brain is arranged that way whose personality is arranged that way and fundamentally they can only ever see the world through their own very particular lens and they they have a way of just viewing everyone and every experience through that lens and that's fine that's that that in and of itself is not really a problem and of course you can argue very quickly that well surely that's what we all do and i go yep i accept that however bringing it back to this idea then of being attacked or conflict what i've experienced is when you find yourself in conflict with a person with that type of brain wiring with that personality with that pathology when you find yourself in conflict with that person there is absolutely no wiggle room there is no room for maneuver because you pose a direct threat to the world they have built and the only way and again this is in my personal experience the only way they have of communicating or dialoguing with you is to try and impose their world on top of yours and to sort of fundamentally convince you that you are an absolute aberration and your standing in the way of their worldview is profoundly wrong like a perversion of nature and they will attempt to correct you um and set you straight so to speak and in basically it's almost like a takeover a hostile takeover and it's in that regard it's a, it, it it becomes like a form of colonialism so their number one mission is yeah the, the number one mission really is to as quickly and emphatically as possible to invalidate your position to invalidate your worldview to invalidate your personal culture your world building so they can replace it with their own and you have to be subjugated so you have to become a subject to their empire their world and then they can tolerate your existence but if you can't do that get ready for unceasing warfare <laughs> so here's the thing when you find yourself then dealing with a person like that and the nature of how they come at you can be so convicted and so um emphatic that you can become 
defensive very quickly. And so this is, you know, this is this is the connection I draw back to the world of karate and self-defense. You have to decide quickly in that situation when you're, you know, physically in, in the physical setting of karate. You have to decide. You have to decide very quickly what are the terms of engagement. This person in front of me, what are their strengths? In what way are they going to try and control this fight? So, for example, maybe the person I'm fighting has excellent kicking techniques and a kick is a long range technique most of the time. So your tactic will be to get inside the range of their kicks so they can't deploy their strongest weapons. Uh, Similarly, if you know they have very fast hands, excellent hand techniques, you might choose to try and stay outside the range of those techniques and resort to a kicking strategy of your own. You might know that they're not a great fighter when taken to the floor. So you might try to sweep the leg and take them down and bring them down to the ground where they're less comfortable. So these are, you know, these are the sort of calculations you can make and allow for in that uh, you know, in that world, the world of you know the, of the karate dojo and the, you know the training hall, um, and you know the world and the conditions that have been set up, they give you that headspace, and they allow you not to go to the personal space. So you're not getting you're not getting hijacked in that way. But what happens outside when we go back to this this engagement or this conflict? with the person who's, again, their, their, their pathology, where that's come from, whether that's, whether that's trauma, whether that's a chemical imbalance in the brain, whether that's a, a diagnosed or undiagnosed mental health uh, problem or a personality disorder. In that situation, the terms of engagement are not equal. There has been no agreement of how we are going to fight and what those rules of engagement are and so the 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 hardest thing to do is to quickly and it's a very you know it it, it takes enormous self-control and self-possession of your emotional response to to step outside that attack to step out of range of that attack and sort of not validate it straight away because if you go straight into kind of defending yourself you're sort of validating the attack and going oh this is a legitimate attack and I'm legitimizing it by choosing to defend myself against it immediately rather than going I'm going to step out of range of this attack and not give it legitimacy because Basically, and this is my position, you're dealing with someone who is not living in the same reality and they're not living under the same laws and terms of that reality as you are. So what they're bringing to the fight is another state, another world, another set of terms and conditions to which you are not privy. And that's very dangerous terrain so that's like me as a karate practitioner 
stepping into a boxing ring and going, okay, let's do it. <laughs> and basically getting the head boxed off me. Because <laughs> it's a very different set of conditions. Um, so I would not choose to do that. So when someone... And here is where I'm going to engage with this idea of what is, you know, what is, you know, madness or what is insanity? What is that altered reality that someone is bringing to to the exchange, to the conflict, to the attack? Because if I can understand that better, then I can deal better with the terms and with you know with the terms of engagement then i can go ah, okay this is this is what's happening this is the world they're coming from so i have to engage a level of attempt to engage a level of empathy and a level of understanding that can better equip me to try and you know defuse the situation to again to use the phrase i used earlier to kind of to 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 take the heat out of the situation because I cannot engage on the same terms as the person who is attacking and that's a key distinction from the world of martial arts that's a key distinction from the world of boxing and it can be a key distinction from you know the world of the street when you're looking at people oh well that person's drunk or I can see that that person's fired up and I can make certain calculations based on a reasonable assumption of the conditions that led to that person being in that state. Um, yeah. So what we're also dealing with then, and we're staying in this area of, you know, looking at a person who could be described as and again, I'm sort of hesitating to use these terms because I, I feel we use a lot of these terms very casually and euphemistically, that kind of offhand description of someone, oh, he's mad, he's insane, oh, he's crazy, you, you know, you couldn't be talking to him or why would you be dealing with that person because, you know, they're, 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 they're lunatic. It, it, it's lunacy. And it's it, it, it detracts from the very the very serious underlying drivers that have brought the person in question to that state, to that condition. Um, and, you know, I, I had I had a bit of a I, I went on a bit of an explore looking for looking for, you know, definitions, definitions of madness, definitions um, of insanity and you know just just to try and inform myself and insanity is described as mental illness of such a severe nature that a person cannot distinguish fantasy from reality cannot conduct her or his affairs due to psychosis or is subject to uncontrollable impulsive behavior and that definition of insanity, I, I believe, is used, you know, in the legal sense to help distinguish guilt from innocence. So particularly when you're talking about someone who doesn't grasp reality, they can't distinguish fantasy from reality. 
Um, and then a clinical definition of madness is described as a poetic, I mean, a nice use of the word poetic here, a poetic meaning non-medical, a poetic term for severe mental illness. Um, and it's further explained as an antiquated, non-specific term for any mental illness, including psychoses or neuroses of any degree and state of decompensation. Now, decompensation, I had to look that up. <laughs> Psychological decompensation is a really interesting idea. And that's defined as the inability to maintain defense mechanisms in response to stress, resulting in personality disturbance or psychological imbalance. I mean, okay, I've just hit you with, with three definitions, one for insanity, one for madness, and one for decompensation. That concept of compensation, I think is really powerful. So you think, you know, when we're under, when we're experiencing stress, when we're experiencing anxiety, I often use the phrase coping mechanism. What's your coping mechanism? How do we offset the imbalance of stress and anxiety bearing down on us? What are our resources? You know, what's my resource to help me cope with anxiety? What's my resource to help me cope with stress? You know, for me personally, I do a lot of exercise, uh, which involves, you know, um, you know, systematized breathing. Um, I obviously I talk about stuff. <laughs> I talk about those things to help me, you know, share and to help me invite, you know, empathy and understanding. I write about them so I can look at them more clearly and articulate them and explain them and break them down which again is a concept i talked about in the last episode breaking them down into their component parts why is this thing stressing me what is it about it that is making me feel uncomfortable what have i done to contribute to this situation how can i change my behavior so we can get into sort of cbt territory um you know cognitive behavioral therapy to look at specific behavior or action and how that contributes to uh, decreasing my resilience or increasing it um, so this idea of compensation then surely is how our brain compensates our you know and you know i i can't help i, I always kind of bring the emotions and you know the, the the kind of psychological component to to proceedings you know what do we do to to compensate to make up for um, what's happening to us and so you know, decompensation, again, the inability to maintain defense mechanisms. That is a very powerful idea. So if you're unable to maintain your defense mechanism, you can't protect yourself from attack. I mean, that, that, I, don't think that's a, I, don't, I don't think that's a difficult concept to understand. You're unable to protect yourself from attack. And... Yeah, that's a, you know, you are then in a very compromised state. You are living in a permanent state. Sorry, you're living in a state of permanent vulnerability. So what is the response to that in yourself? And see, this is what leads us then to 
this idea of you know madness or erratic behavior or you know what we consider extreme behavior and then how we you know put those terms onto that behavior we put those terms onto that person's worldview and we use those terms like mad or insane or crazy but if you think that they're in a state of vulnerability and so their way of protecting themselves is to embrace something very rigid to put up armor to put up an aggressive mode of interaction that's how they're going to protect themselves i mean that again i don't think is difficult to understand we can you know we can draw a connection to the animal world i mean animals are most dangerous when they're afraid when they feel they're under attack or backed into a corner but let me let me go on a bit of a a strange jump to the world of comics from this um i was again part of sort of what i was you know researching or looking up when i was planning this episode i it occurred to me that the joker the joker from the you know world of dc comics joker the joker from the world of batman an enemy of you know of arguably batman's arch enemy um he's been depicted in various stages uh, over the years in tv and movies but originated in comics and when the comic book became a bit more grown up and serious in the 80s and you know authors writers and artists started collaborating on a more adult interpretation of these established characters and created graphic novels uh, sort of long form comics uh, often serialized in comic form but then put into nice hardback editions or very sort of highly produced paperback editions and alan moore who is the writer behind uh, watchmen and v for vendetta the ballad of halo jones among others a great british writer of comics often who often informs his work with subverses sorry subversive dystopian undercurrents overcurrents really clever and dark depictions of you know alternate realities i mean he really sort of reinvented our understanding of what superhero characters could be with watchmen but anyway in 1988 he produced the killing joke which was like a one-off batman edition featuring a sort of a an origin story for the joker and it's beautifully illustrated uh, or scarily in, illustrated by brian boland who i would have been familiar with from the british mag uh, comic 2000 ad uh, which my older brother collected as a, a as a kid but anyway the joker in this particular story uh kidnaps commissioner james gordon the the you know the head of the police force who becomes an ally of batman and the joker basically kidnaps james gordon but first he shoots james gordon's daughter uh through the stomach bullet to the spine and takes photographs of her in this terribly injured state and then kidnaps her father brings him to an abandoned amusement park which the joker has converted into sort of a 
you know, a, a horror park and tries to drive the commissioner mad by sending them into a, like a, on a journey along a ghost train where he's put up pictures of the commissioner's injured daughter. Um, so it's, you know, it's a very dark uh, sequence of events. But before the Joker sends Commissioner Gordon on the ghost train, he lays out the pathway to madness. And I'm going to quote it here because, again, this is from the, the brain of Alan Moore, the mind of Alan Moore. Um, and these are, you know, these are the words he gives to the Joker. And the Joker is, it's basically a long monologue that starts from a position of memory and remembering things because Commissioner Gordon has just, after being unconscious, has regained consciousness and is remembering what happened to his daughter. And he, Commissioner Gordon says, I remember. And the Joker says, remember? Oh, I wouldn't do that. Remembering's dangerous. I find the past such a worrying, anxious place. The past tense, I suppose you'd call it. And he laughs maniacally. Memories so treacherous. One moment you're lost in a carnival of delights with poignant childhood aromas, the flashing neon of puberty, all that sentimental candy floss. The next, it leads you somewhere you don't want to go. Somewhere dark and cold, filled with the damp, ambiguous shapes of things you'd hoped were forgotten. Memories can be vile, repulsive little brutes, like children, I suppose. And again, the maniacal laugh. But can we live without them? Memories are what our reason is based upon. If we can't face them, we deny reason itself. Although, why not? We aren't contractually tied down to rationality. There is no sanity clause little pun there from Alan Moore and he concludes so when you find yourself locked onto an unpleasant train of thought heading for the places in your past where the screaming is unbearable remember there's always madness madness is the emergency exit you can just step outside and close the door on all those dreadful things that happened. You can lock them away forever. So that's the Joker psychologically torturing one of his victims and advocating the embrace of madness as the only sane coping mechanism. Um, the only sane coping mechanism the only sane compensation for the horribleness of memory, the horribleness of trauma, the horribleness of the dark stuff we carry with us. And, of course, the Joker is fundamentally trying to, you know, bring everyone into line with his mode of behaviour and his worldview. And he pursues that agenda aggressively, you know, throughout the uh, the various kind of iterations and incarnations of his character and career across the the DC universe. Um, a great character, actually, I think. Brilliant. 
<laughs> and it's funny in this particular in this particular graphic novel it sort of points up you know it, it points up batman's ultra seriousness his sort of po-faced moralizing um you know his kind of censorious puritanism and the joker emerges as a very attractive character by comparison um that's not an accident i'm sure i mean something which was lampooned brilliantly in the batman lego movie <laughs> i recommend you check that one out absolutely superb um you know it, it, it just points up the sort of the, the, the vanity the vanity of the you know the, the, the batman character the vanity of the the solo ascetic warrior life um the you know the self-flagellation and the the vainglory that kind of goes with that you know batman learns he learns the error of his ways anyway whatever but that that positing from the joker about the the attraction of madness it sort of i don't know it, it, like to me it, it 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 invites a sympathetic viewpoint where you know madness is the last resort and you know to 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 just come down from that very loaded broad term madness back to just someone who's living in an altered state i think if we understand their behavior or their viewpoint as an extreme coping mechanism it it does sort of lay the pathway for sympathy and a bit more empathy even if you you find yourself the victim of their worldview if you find yourself feeling wronged and the the you know the the injustice of what's happened is is glaring and hurtful but if you step away and go i don't need to engage on their terms it is a way of protecting yourself because it's unlikely it's unlikely you'll ever find terms that will be satisfactory to you and that is that is a loss and that is sad but there is a sort of a self-protection that comes with that which i think is desirable um yeah now i want to conclude i want to conclude this episode and i i got i had so many more areas i wanted to go but i, I feel i feel i'd go twice as long as i have done already i mean there was a great deep dive into some of these historically mad figures nietzsche and Caligula and Nero and Rasputin um, and a lot of interesting stuff <laughs> maybe I'll have to return I'll have to return to this this gallery this gallery of lunatics this you know and the you know the tour of the asylum uh, the asylums where these people were kept um, you know it's interesting I was looking at the history of a, a state hospital in Boston which was you know, effectively an insane asylum in the uh, the 1800s and you know goes into a lot of detail about the the physical setup of the asylum and the gardens and the whole philosophy of trying to create a haven a beneficial restorative haven for you know for the the patients or the 
the guests, inmates, however we want to describe them. Um, and it also talks about the different treatments. It gives a great um, breakdown of the patient profile. And it was funny. One, one thing that came up, uh, I'll just read it to you here. The superintendent, superintendent Dr. Samuel B. Woodward, believed that Irish immigrants drove themselves insane by indulgence of stimulating drink and that they were less likely to recover from insanity than their native-born counterparts. <laughs> so, so Dr. Sammy B is basically washing his hands of the insane Irish because it's like, look, forget it. They're just going to keep on drinking. Drinking what? Stimulating drink. We're wasting our time. We're wasting our time with the paddies. Um, yeah. <laughs> Forget it. it. But it's funny. I mean, the, you know, the, the background at that time, you know, the, the, the view of, the view of insanity in the 1800s, physicians believed insanity, and again, I'm quoting here, physicians believed insanity was a disease of the brain that was triggered by the violation of the natural laws of health. These laws required moderation in work, exercise, diet, and rest, and prohibited overindulgence of immoral behavior. The apparent rise in the number of lunatics in the 19th century was attributed to industrialization and urbanization, which separated human beings from nature and encouraged bad habits. So it's an interesting thing. I mean, there's something... I think there's something very, there is a sort of a truth in that the, you know, the rise of industrialization and urbanization, that to me infers a dehumanization and being removed from nature and the encouragement of bad habits. But the bad habits emerge as a coping mechanism in those environments. But I think, you know, the, the broader sense of, a departure from moral behavior leading to insanity. I mean, that's that's extremely dubious at this stage. Um, I mean, that's very sort of Victorian in its view. And that, of course, leads to the more general, I think the more general way we can define madness as a departure from conventional behavior. And so, so and that word that was used, that I just, you know, in, in the quote I just gave you, you know, moderation, so we expect we you know the, the sort of the social compact is that we'll all we'll all behave accordingly, we'll all behave in a moderate way that encourages mutual tolerance, and you know behave in a way that we can all allow and bear fundamentally, and when people step outside that, you know we have a sort of a deviancy, a scheme of deviancy that helps us go oh well, that's that's criminal behaviour. Or, you know, that's mad behavior. And we find it threatening. It threatens the order. It threatens the status quo. Um, and so when you see people talking to themselves in the street, you know, part of our brain registers that and is alarmed. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's not, a, it's a, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not finishing on a particularly conclusive point. Um, and in fact, I'm not finishing at all because I want to finish. <laughs> I want to actually finish with a little, a little story, a little story from the world of karate. 
And this is to illustrate that, you know, madness can exist within the karate world as well. So let me remind you again, karate, how we train, there is a system, a code of behavior, a way that we conduct ourselves to ensure safety, order, minimize injury. And it's, you know, it all attaches to high and mighty notions of respect and self-control and the aspiration to a perfection that will that will never arrive it's very idealistic um and for me uh, a karate setting regardless of where it is physically it's a sacred space it's a sacred space you get to go in and conduct yourself in a very particular way and remove the personal and embrace a sort of a an ethical system of fighting and self-improvement i mean that's what it is i mean it's it's ultimately it, all traditional martial arts it's about self-improvement self-discipline self-control anyway my instructor in melbourne a brilliant japanese one uh, who became a friend and who really entrusted me to be her her number two guy in the dojo for a long time. Her, she leaned on me as an instructor to, to pick up the slack when she had too much to do. Uh, she had beautiful karate, really fantastic. and still does. She's still running her club in Melbourne. Um, but at, at one point she found herself in a relationship with one of her senior students who also coincidentally had fantastic karate, really aesthetically lovely, lovely karate. And their relationship ended and he, there was a bit of, there was a lot of bad blood there and maybe he could have handled it differently. He may have behaved a little bit dishonorably and yeah, there was, you know, there was an aftermath. Anyway, he left the country and that was the end of the relationship. But like many karate practitioners, when we find ourselves back in a, a city where we once trained, a country where we once trained, we'll often revisit our old dojo and sure enough, he came to train and he was welcomed back with open arms and um, my instructor announced his arrival and gave him the respect he was due and that was all great. And then, <laughs> then at the end of the session, she was like, okay, everyone. Uh, and she put this guy in the middle of a circle and subjected him to that same ritual that I was describing earlier where basically everyone had to attack him and that that drill or that ritual it's, it's usually you know reserved to illustrate very particular points that are to the benefit of everyone present that are to, to the benefit of the person in the middle that are to the benefit of people who need to observe a certain mode of fighting or spirit and none of that was on the agenda for this particular uh, this particular time it was it was being uh, performed or enacted or administered but basically she wanted this guy to get hit and every time she went into the circle she was whacking him <laughs> good punches to the head and it was very clear her agenda was you hurt me now I'm gonna hurt you and he he would have been well able to dominate our instructor 
he would have been well able to defend himself and remove or deactivate her weapons so to speak because he had a greater skill set and physically bigger stronger faster but there is like the military there is a hierarchy there is a chain of command in karate and it's very much uh do as i say not as i do and a lot of karate clubs you know they're they're subject to the cult of personality and our dojo and my instructor she was no different in in that regard and in that moment it was like this is my this is my uh this is my dojo this is my story this is my moment and get ready to pay <laughs> and i just thought this has nothing to do with karate and i i mean i communicated as much to the guy afterwards and you know it would have been inappropriate for me to intervene or object or make my concerns known in that moment that would have been a breach of the code of conduct and i know there may be some female listeners out there going nice one that's one for the girls and fair play to her and i'd like to meet that woman she sounds great and i can i can see that side of it but as i said earlier to me that's a sacred space and you don't bring your personal shit into it um that's a that's a breach that's a breach of what it's meant to be about but there you go it's uh is is that a form of madness i don't know maybe that's a form of of power that's a form of, of one person's world disregarding the rest of the world and that really is uh yeah that is a type of madness i think so there you go that um that went a bit longer than i was expecting i hope i hope you've stayed with me i hope the thread made sense um i hope you got something from it and to fly in the face of everything i've just said for the last hour and a bit hold on to a little bit of madness for yourself i i I value that highly your own personal spark of insanity of pushing against the grain cherish it nurture it love it keep it lit um just you know don't let it become a, a raging inferno that burns down the world of everyone around you because that wouldn't be nice okay listen thank you so much for listening thank you for giving me your ears and don't forget you can listen to the podcast wherever you get them spotify apple podcasts google amazon wherever and you if you choose to and want to support this podcast and help me keep it going uh you can do so at patreon.com forward slash the clear out you can read me at theclearout.com and you can find another link if you want to contribute to the podcast um a supporter link to give a one-off contribution if you like what you're hearing so great stuff thanks for listening please subscribe follow like share spread the word if you think someone would enjoy listening to this give them a nudge send them a link do what you can i'd really appreciate it because i'm really enjoying doing this (laughs) and i'd like to continue doing it so there you go stay safe stay well stay on the right side of the road mind yourselves all the best take care